Welcome to Nerds Podcast number 432. Um, at midnight, still on for two more weeks as of the airing of this podcast. Uh, and by airing, I mean permanently on the internet forever. <laughs> What's uh, this going up? Uh, Monday the 4th. Well, tune in tonight to At Midnight to see one Jonah Ray. Oh, you are good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just wait till tonight, friend. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, Jonah Ray is going to be on uh, At Midnight tonight. Yeah. Uh, so tune in. It's uh, on At Midnight after Colbert. Looking forward to it. Thanks. It's I'm glad show. you're doing the show. I appreciate that. It's yeah, been yeah, really yeah. fun. No, no, no. It's nice that you know, I'm one of your closest friends and it's I'm on week three. But in the end, <laughs> I think it's just like, you know, you wanted to wait to make sure it was a steady ship before you have your friend. You don't want to join your friend. Hey, hey, get on the sinking boat. No, it's not sinking. It's still afloat. It's doing really well. You talk about it's hovering above the water. <laughs> it's doing real well. I've checked out the numbers on Split Cider. No, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> to get my deep... Entertainment news. You know, if we come back, I'll be happy to put you on the first week if you get more famous by then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, I'm you, kidding. You and Jeselnik are the exact same person. <laughs> oh, don't say that. <laughs> We'd love to have you on again. It's just, you're not that famous. <laughs> See, he would say that seriously. I, I would never say I would but never he would think say that. it to my face. Yeah, he would say it to your yeah, face. That's yeah. what makes Yeah, it, I would yeah. just say it to our mutual manager. Yes. <laughs> 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I, I'm kidding. I, I love this guy Dude, I, It's not true at all I'm, Unlike a lot of people, I know exactly my place No, 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 no The fun thing about At Midnight is that it, it really is about the comedy on the show It doesn't matter, to me it doesn't matter Like, I don't, you know it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I just want the funniest show And I think, I, hopefully we've been, we've been doing that Yeah, yeah, yeah You gotta get that, you gotta, you know, gotta get that star power like Mike Lawrence <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly my point. It's not about it's not about famous comics at all. It's just about it's about funny people. It's just about funny people. But a lot of it is this weird. I sound so petty right now. Yeah, you do. I, you do. I know. But a lot a lot of it is sort of schedule tetrising, where it's like, oh, this you know, we we're trying to put people together that we think will complement, like. Oh, this person. Oh, no, no, I totally, I yeah. totally know. Yeah, don't yeah. worry, don't worry. Yeah. I'm okay. not. I'm, I'm Are we gonna fun. have to have an offline conversation about this? No, 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 good? No. Okay, good. Do we ever have those? What is, uh, no. <laughs> Jonah, can you get some recording equipment? I need yeah. to have a conversation yeah. with you. Every time I'm walking up to Chris to say something, he just fumbles for his <laughs> don't phone. Stop talking yet? <laughs> Hold on, I can't do this. This episode of the I love these kind of hostful intros. They're really fun. This episode of Nerds Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Um, Pretend you have a wad of cash in your hand. Are you doing the space work? Good. If you're driving, don't. Um, now imagine throwing it in the trash. Imagine, imagine throwing it in the trash. That's what you do if you lease one of those expensive postage meters that people love to lease all the time for their small businesses. You don't, you have a built-in postage meter. It's called your computer. You can use that to print out postage, the exact postage you need using stamps.com. Get all the benefits of a postage meter and more at a fraction of the cost. Print out any envelope, any package, any class of mail. And then you don't have to go to the post office. Your, your postal carrier comes and picks it up. Post office? Have you been there recently? Scary, sad place. You know, the most fun part about this bit is watching you do it, Jonah, and that no one else will see. Leaning into the mic and shuffling your shoulders and going, That's really fun. Stamps.com has a special offer right now. Use the promo code NERDIST. No risk trial, $110 bonus offer, and up to $55 of free postage. Do not 
wait unless you're driving. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. <laughs> Top of the homepage. Officer, Your Honor, Chris Hardwick said to do it now, and that's why I crashed my car. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you ever hear of the Talking Dead? A show about another show? <laughs> Who would do that? Uh, <laughs> go to the top of the homepage and type in Nerdist. That's stamps.com under the promo code Nerdist. This begins our uh, Marvel Week on the Nerdist podcast. We have Clark Gregg today. Uh, Clark is on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He plays Agent Phil Coulson, obviously from all the yeah. Avengers movies. He was also recently in the movie uh, The To-Do List. He was in The To-Do List? Yes. He wrote Choke. He wrote Choke? Yeah, he also wrote uh, What Lies Beneath. No way! Yeah, he's a fucking amazing writer. Wow. Yeah, he's a cool cool guy. With the, the screenplay adaptation yeah, of... Yeah, he wrote uh, the screenplay adaptation. Wow, yes. wow, wow. I'm sorry, yes, he wrote the Love screenplay Love me. I love me some of the... the Jesus Christ, I just... Choke? No, it's the... Tony Danza. The actor, and how come I'm just... Completely... Sam Rockwell? Yes. Okay, good. Jesus. It's always the worst thing where, like, uh, he's my favorite actor, the guy, um, though I don't know his name, though. Okay, this might be a stretch because you might not remember the song, but there was a song in the 80s called Somebody's Watching Me by the artist Rockwell, yes. and Michael Jackson sings in the chorus on it, mm-hmm. so whenever you forget Sam Rockwell's name, it goes, I always feel like Sam Rockwell's watching me. <laughs> That's now going to be yeah, every that, time. Yeah. Every time, and you will never forget again. Yeah, yeah. Is just yeah. a dream. That's what uh, one, one of his characters oh, oh, oh. in uh, Moon is always singing. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's Spoiler alert. See? Sorry. Um, so Clark Craig was on, and uh, and uh, delightful man. I would see him at Comic-Cons all the time, and we'd always sort of, I would either moderate a panel or see him in passing. And he was one of those guys that, some people you see, they're like in sort of business mode at Comic-Cons. He would always come over and say hi, and how's it going? And like just a really, just a good guy. Yeah, comfortable with himself. Comfortable with himself. Just just sort of oozes like appreciation for everything. Yeah. And uh, and, and I, I, I enjoy the man immensely. So here he is on the Nerdist Podcast. Uh, oh, so Clark's on today. Tom Hiddleston will be on Monday or Wednesday's episode. And then Kevin Feige, who's head of Marvel Studios, uh, is on the Friday show. That was a fun one, too. It's fucking great. Yeah, yeah. Haven't done the Hiddleston one, though. You have not, haven't done the Hiddleston one yet. Yeah, we're doing it next yes, week. Yes. Are you going to be at that one? I be- Wait, what, what day? Mon- it's Monday. Mon- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm around. Okay, good, 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 yes. good, good, good. So uh, it's actually today, the day we're recording. While you're listening to this <laughs> podcast with Clark Gregg, we will be recording Tom Hiddleston, so we'll have a nice little... Uh, and then I'll be running from there with you back here to do the show. Yes, and you'll be doing it at midnight. Monday's Jonah Ray Day. <laughs> Every day is Jonah Ray Day. Oh. All right, here we go. Nerds Podcast 432 with Clark Gregg. Now entering Nerdist.com. Clark, I'm so glad we finally got you on the podcast. Me too. You're busy. You too. <laughs> That's true. Okay, I'll take some of that. I'll take some of that. I'll take some of that. Um, congratulations on Shield. Oh, is this the podcast? Are we doing it right? We've already now? started. Man. Oh, I'm loving it so far. Right. Um, thank you for the congratulations. Uh, I, I feel quite fortunate. Let's talk a little bit about Phil Coulson. What does he love? What's his perfect Sunday? Oh wow, you're going right to the heart of the matter. <laughs> well, the fun thing about Phil Coulson is that I certainly have an inner life that I design. And then redesign every time I get a new script and go, oh, I'm in love with Captain America. 
Oh no, just a man crush. <laughs> Twenty pages. Later. Okay, we're good. Okay, then I, most of this is still works. Okay, and then I get the you know the new episode of Agents of Shield, and uh, oh, he likes a, a vegetable fair out in the country. You know, I might be spoiling something, and um, so I have to kind of constantly adapt to the new chapters of Phil Coulson as I learn them. What I like about him is. He represents a kind of man in a suit by the book figure and from the beginning has always just been allowed to have a little bit of an attitude, a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, a little bit fed up with the super divas that he has to deal with. And that's certainly something we're getting to explore. Also, uh, you know, one of the big game changers was the Asgardian scepter that he was shanked with by, by Loki and the fallout from that trauma and the mystery that seems to be evolving both for him and for the audience about what really happened afterwards it's pretty genius that we just had we just talked to kevin feige and um the the sort of the way in which the universe weaves i mean what i can't think of another franchise that like a television show picked up kind of where the movie left off but then there's still other movies that are out there that are going to connect out of those i mean it's like it's so perfectly interwoven. Yeah, he's he's a genius, Kevin. He's I mean, I've been kind of watching him for a while, and he, he's probably he, listening right now. He might be. Uh oh. Um, Kevin, pay attention to the road. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he. I've been watching him put this together, and as the fans say, it's all canon. It's all part of it. And uh, you know, you. A lot of people were concerned when we went to do a TV show that they were gonna. It was going to be a separate world that wouldn't make sense with it, but. He and Jeremy and now Jeff Loeb, they had no interest in that, nor did Joss. It really all has to connect. And the one thing that's fun watching them put the movies together and now the TV show is they don't miss an opportunity to kind of take things that are on the table and really exploit them. And I think, you know, even though the show's going to stay focused on the, the people that uh, Phil Coulson represents, the human face of this world, the vulnerable face of this world... Um, the extremely skilled, vulnerable face. Um, I think you're going to see some really interesting kind of threads crossing over from films that are about to come out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what's great about it is that it is all about it is all about the story, and the medium is almost secondary. And it's like, oh, well, you know, TV. This could be a TV, you know, movie. Okay, yeah. well, this will be a 250 million dollar movie, so we'll have more, you know, like big stuff in it. Or like, it, if they if they launched, you know, if there were a series of like superhero vlogs, I'd be like, I get it. I'm totally on board. It that just... makes sense for Ant Man, but <laughs> although I think Ant Man's getting a big feature, but yeah. Oh my God, that looks so cool. I know that footage. <laughs> he showed us the footage at the. I missed the Marvel panel where they showed that. It was fucking awesome. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've only seen some images. I'm a little upset right now. Um, well, this is... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I haven't seen anything. What are you talking about? Damn it. I seen anything. You're, you're on the inside. Kevin, show him the footage. Um, you, along with John, you've now become the vice god of Comic-Con. It's pretty impressive. I'm, I am a humble servant. I'm a, I'm a friendly traffic cop. That's what I do. I friend, nice. I'm a friendly That's, that traffic cop. That sounds like cop. Phil Coulson. <laughs> I happen is. to know you have a giant <laughs> nerd weapon underneath that jacket. So. <laughs> it's in my sternum, which opens up. Yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, just this character, this is sort of the dream of every actor of like, oh, you're in, you're sort of a, you know, you're in a small part, and then all of a sudden it's you're the guy, 
like you're the guy and then it all ends up you develop and it ends up kind of you know you're the center of it now that's really funny uh, you're right what happened Phil Coulson is based what happened to Phil Coulson is basically the demented inner monologue of every supporting actor someday like, man they're gonna see this amazing someday. stuff I'm doing over here <laughs> and they're gonna bring him back and they're gonna give him a bigger part next time and you know it's usually what you're muttering to yourself in your car as you go back and try to get another small part and to have it you know I almost didn't take Phil Coulson because he wasn't even named Phil Coulson. He literally, his only name was Agent, not right. his first. And he was only a couple of scenes. And I thought, oh, look at that cast. Those are all my favorite actors. This guy's never going to end up in the movie. Did you, was there an audition? Did no, you have to they go called in? me. Oh, okay. I think they had seen a, a kind of um, a precedent to Phil Coulson in um, Agent Casper, mm-hmm. a, guy, a character that I played in 8 or 10 uh, West Wings. And they offered it to me, but there was, you know, there wasn't much there. And yet, Marvel said we need a three-picture deal. I was like, that's almost as many pictures as lines that I have. <laughs> One picture each line. And um, and I, th- th- you know, the thing happened that never happened, which is something clicks, and they start to expand it. And pretty soon, he's talking about the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement Logistics Division. And I read just enough comics to kind of pull Jeremy Latcham, Kevin's number two, aside and go. That sounds an awful lot like S.H.I.E.L.D. And I was like, yes, yes, it is. Um, And so that, it happened in in a way that never happens. And I'm just, I'm a very lucky, humble traffic cop. I love the, uh, I love the line from the pilot where they, um, it's just, it's just a very Whedon-esque kind of a thing to do where he's like, where the, the one the one agent goes, uh, it sounds like you just wanted to call it Shield, like yeah. <laughs> spell out the acronym. It it's sounds true. like you just wanted to say Shield. Well, you look at you look at some old uh, renditions of the logo in comics and stuff, and it actually has a couple of different words mixed in there. Yeah, <laughs> like, hazardous. But these are the main ones. Look, these are the just, main ones. Yeah. Come on. The, the, even the logo's undercover. It can't decide <laughs> on its identity. That's how you keep everyone on their toes. Uh, did you? Was there ever a scene from West Wing where you came in and said we found something in the desert? Was it like that? Maybe there's a way to connect those two guys. Well, that's funny. The, both of them had the same job uh, early on in Coulson's life, which is here comes some exposition with some crazy techno babble, and I've got to make it sound dramatic. <laughs> and uh, certainly, you can find an episode of uh, of West Wing where I'm, I'm briefing the president about a terrorist attack. That if you just throw in, you know, d- destroyer. Yeah. One or two little more. Or just terms. add the word tesseract. Tesseract. Then that's exactly. all you have to add. Mr. President, Thor has landed. <laughs> and then, of course, President Bartlett would deal with it in a very even-keeled sort of a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's just, he's like Director Fury with a few less bleeped out motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the one thing about, I mean, there's a West Wing was a phenomenal show, and but... It's hard not to watch it and go, I really think there's probably a lot more swearing in that portion yes, of the White House very true. than we would actually are led, being led to believe. I mean, if you've ever heard any of the Nixon tapes, you go, wow. <laughs> Did you ever hear the great, um, there's, a, there's recordings online of, um, of LBJ ordering pants from one of the Hager brothers. That's on my must listen okay, to list. It, it really is. Do you, have you guys heard it? So Lyndon Johnson is ordering Hager Slacks. Hager Slacks. It sounds like the greatest setup to an unwritten joke I've it ever is, heard. It, it's way better than any joke that could ever be written. <laughs> it's Johnson, and it's, you know, it was the tapes from the, like, his phone in the, in the Oval Office. And he's basically ordering pants from Hager, and he's, but he's trying to get them customized. 
but he's such a good old boy that he keeps going, now, I don't want the pants up too up high in the crotch where the bunghole is. Sometimes they ride it. He says bunghole like 12 times. And this guy, and then Hager of Hager Slacks, it, it just, there's nothing he can say other than, of course, Mr. President. Yes, yes of course. Yes. Of course, we will take care of that. You don't want to be chafing the first bunghole. <laughs> hey, what's that light through the wah? And then, yeah. he go, and then the guy goes down. But it's, it is a great... It is a phenomenal, like, you just get such a sense of who that guy was yeah. based on, it's a, it rides up in the crate, rubs on the crotch where the bunghole is. Maybe we should tack this on to the end of the podcast, Katie. Um, and then we'll do a, a dramatic You reading. guys do an after credits thing? <laughs> well, I love after shows, Clark. I, I have to host the after show for my own podcast. I hear you. <laughs> Tonight on Talking Big Clark. Big reveal. Tonight I'll on Clark sketches. And, Clark and Greg. It'll be Clark and Greg. There you go. The Hager brothers. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, you're what? What? I'm sure a lot of people know this about you, but you're a screenwriter and you've written some really great movies. Oh, thank you. Um, what Lies Beneath uh, was terrific, and Choke was fucking super cool and dark, and I, and I think it's sort of. That's what I love discovering about people is like, oh, he's a, you know, he's a guy, he's an actor, he's in this, oh no, he's just this other dimension of this kind of dark, <laughs> demented. I seem to not like downtime. And uh, when I, I first got out here after doing theater for 10 years in New York, it was a lot of downtime. And, uh, you know, you can only play so much mini golf um, <laughs> with other desperate you know, depressed what, actors. I was like, this the, is over on Sepulveda, like off Sepulveda in the 405. I was in Venice. It was actually kind of par three, and you would oh, go there, and it was okay. just one different guy you'd seen at the audition the week before teeing off after another. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm either going to find something else to do with my time, or I'm going to kind of choke myself to death with the flag of the golf course. And, um, and so that's I started where you writing. got the idea for choke. Exactly right. And uh, so I did that for a while, and I even. I don't know. For a while, I was really much more of a screenwriter after What Lies Beneath. That's how I was kind of supporting my, my, my new family. And I still would act in plays or do an independent film once in a while. And I don't know. Then Aaron Sorkin called me up and put me in some West Wing. And, I, and then that happens. And then I got a sitcom with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, which was really fun. And in the middle of that, John Favreau, who was my neighbor, called up and said, ah, we got this thing. It's just a little bit. We'd love to have you. And <laughs> weirdly, here I am. That's how it always happens. I, well, that's not how it always happens, but that's how it happens a lot, where it's you think the thing that you're aiming for is going to be the thing that tips every, all of it, and then you get a weird random call of, oh, here's this small thing, and then all of a sudden that becomes the thing. It's really true, and I, I, can't, I can never figure out on what level it happened. It probably happened on both, because on one hand, after I'd written this script and it was getting made with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer... Something I thought of myself as a screenwriter, and I wasn't so like terrified and needy. And in auditions, I was kind of like, "Well, I'd like this gig, but you know, I'm not starving." And my whole self wasn't tied up in whether or not I was good at that audition that day. And that kind of makes you better. It lets you kind of actually be in the moment and work better on one level. But at the same time, I feel like, well, suddenly my name was in the trades as a writer, and I swear I think started people bringing people started bringing me in more as a result of that. So. I don't know, depth, shallow, somewhere in there it started to work. But it, it is it, the, the, the sort of um, the confidence that you get from having another skill set. I mean, when, you're, when, you're, when you sort of live and die by auditions, that's not a, that's not a fun place to be because you cannot control any of it. At least as a writer, you feel like, I can sit down and write whenever I feel like it. You're, that's exactly right. If you actually kind of do business with how little control you have about getting the part – 
You know, I was lucky. Early on, Billy Hopkins, this great casting director in New York, hired me to be the reader on some movies like Jacob's Ladder. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I read with every actor close to my age who was actually successful and saw great auditions and that got them nothing. And, uh, and you kind of start to realize, gosh, it's just a crapshoot. They're looking for someone who goes along with this person, who looks good with that person, and so many people are doing great work. And if you really embrace that, it's kind of hard to get it up to go into some room where there's phones ringing and everything's kind of designed to make you self-conscious. It's a miracle to me that anyone ever gets apart from an audition. Once in a while it goes well, and you do everything exactly the same down to your shower and your shave, and it goes completely <laughs> south the next time. So... Uh, yeah, the, the um, ritual. Yeah. The ritual. The ritual. Oh, I had sort of, my shoes were kind of shiny that day. Maybe they should be sort of shiny. You know what that is? That is, that is a, that's sort of a desperate mind trying to control an entirely uncontrollable, uncontrollable situation. Yeah, which might be the human experience all, you know, all in all. Sure. But that's how it's manifested for an actor in a given day because so much of it's out of your control. When you were watching other actors audition, even really good actors, was there one particular bad habit you noticed? Like, oh, I shouldn't do that. Like, were you essentially just watching yourself in them? What did you pick up on? Um, you know, I, I'll go the other way. I actually, so often you'd go in there and try to kind of like do some witty banter and make friends with the director. And I would anyway. And, uh, and you know, that can go south too. <laughs> and I, some of the people I was... I just saw them just kind of come in like like it's some kind of chess master and literally just take out their board, break out their pieces and throw their seven moves down and walk out. And I thought, wow, that's that's a much cleaner way to go. Yeah. I never did it, but I thought it was cool. Yeah, I was I, I would always try to I would always try to do the smoke and mirrors of like, let me try to dazzle you with my personality to hide the fact that I'm not a great auditioner. Yeah. And then you piss them off or rub them the wrong way, and then you're not a great auditioner. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, but it's funny because if I'm really honest, I, you know, if they had open auditions for Phil Coulson, I probably wouldn't have got it. You know, they had somebody hotter or a better auditioner probably would have gotten it. When it was a littler role, I got a chance to get in there and gradually kind of push myself and, you know, take those moments and see what I could do with them. And, uh, and kind of earn him a little bit bigger spot. But, you know, God knows. There'd be a much cooler, handsomer, younger Phil Coulson if, if it had gone that way. Do, are, you, are you currently writing anything else? I wrote another film that I made last fall called Trust Me. Trust Me, yeah, about the, the, the agent. Lose your agent for child actors who everybody leaves when they start to make it. And it's kind of a dark comedy that becomes a bit noir. And... Uh, I'm desperately in love with it, and it's a very odd film, I think. And we're selling it at the moment, closing a deal, and it'll come out in the spring. It's a, I got my friends to be in it. I have a great cast, Sam Rockwell and Amanda Peet and Allison Janney and Bill Macy and Felicity Huffman. It's Jesus just terrific. Christ. I mean, every one of those people is sort of like uh, they all have the, the timing, like the comic timing. Amanda, I love Amanda Pete. And, oh, and she's and so Sam brilliant, Rockwell, and, and, Sam and Sam's Sam's my pal. He was the lead in Choke, and I played the guy. It was the guy was just the perfect blend of kind of desperate and loser that uh, I didn't really f and old, and I felt like that's this is my thing. I can't I can't give this away, and and so Sam is the much cooler agent who everyone leaves him for, and and everybody kind of showed up because I directed it as well, which was a crazy thing to try to do, and everybody showed up, and it was. I was kind of carried along on the brilliant comedic wings of my friends. 
Are you happy with uh, – are, are you able to finish stuff or do you always feel like, oh, I, I could have done this or I should have done that? Or are you like, no, it's done? Um, I can futz around for a while. You know, I guess perhaps fortunately with an indie film like that, they don't give you much time. You know, you, there's so little money for the editing and the post that you better crack it. And this one really needed some – to be found, the tone's really unusual and shifting sands and we really needed to find it relatively quickly and in anything that you write and certainly anything you play the main character in you lose a bit of perspective watching what you're doing Mm -hmm. so when you're kind of directing it and watching it as well it becomes really hard you're not having the same experience watching it as a fresh pair of eyes and you have to bring in your smartest and, and most ruthless friends to kind of go, what's what's working here? What's not? Yeah, because you can get you can get so close to it that you it's just like just putting your nose up against a painting and you can't see it. Everything just looks really blurry. So how do you you really you really better trust your friends that come in and give you some perspective? You have to. And the funny thing is, even before they say a word, you bring them into some screening room and you're sitting behind them, which is how I do it, in the room. And before they've said a word or laughed or had a chance to just feeling other people's presence and kind of filtering what you know about their consciousness. And you start to see the movie in a completely different way. I've already written down half the notes they're going to give me <laughs> before they say a word afterwards just because I go, of course. And you see, you see how desperately attached to it your brain is because you go, this character's name changes halfway through the movie and I didn't see it. Right. More in the script phase. <laughs> you just kind of go, whoa, whoa. Someone goes, you know, his name's different. In the first half, you think, I've read this 45 times. How did I? You, t- you totally, you totally missed yeah, it. Yeah, it's gibberish. But uh, in terms of that part of the creative process, is it sort of fun for you to then go do something like S.H.I.E.L.D. where you get to show up and, and be an actor and not have the responsibility of having to run the production? Yeah, it really is, especially because the scripts from Jed and Marissa – Whedon, Jeff Bell, and some of the writers we have, just every week it kind of raises the game. And that, you know, Joss is a little busy with Age of Ultron. Some other stuff going on. <laughs> a little bit of other stuff. And it's clearly very involved, but we're dependent on, you know, the scripts taking this new ensemble of people and really breaking that story and finding the voice of the show. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't feel as good if I wasn't seeing scripts coming that I just... I can't wait for people to see some of the episodes that are coming. I really think they're of a very high quality. Jed wrote it with the Jed's writing it with him, right? Jed Jed Whedon. Jed Whedon, his younger brother, is a terrific writer, and Jed's wife Marissa. Um, yeah, Jed they're Marissa. a writing team, right? And they've worked on a bunch of his shows. They worked and, on Doctor Horrible too. Yeah, and they have Jed has his own very specific voice that you kind of go, well, that's like Jed. That's Joss Whedon's brother. Mm-hmm. Funny, dark, really gets it, and. Uh, the episodes that they've written, we're doing another one right now, they feel <laughs> they feel like the spirit of Joss is there with something else, with something different. Would you want to, having done, having done Trust Me, do, do you want, would you ever want to do like a huge budget movie or do you kind of like doing it a little bit smaller, having a little bit more control? Sometimes I feel like too much money can make things um, a little <laughs> more challenging. Oh, yeah. No, I see... I see what directors on big-budget films have to deal with, and sometimes, especially kind of with the studio and the, the megastar and their people, everyone kind of... It's, there's a lot of politics involved that I would, not, I would not enjoy. On the other hand, I watched the experience that John Favreau and Kenneth Branagh and, and Joss had on, with Marvel, and they actually take really good care of the filmmakers. They've got this fantastic team set up, so where they're, you know, they're bringing in the pre-visualized 
effects so you kind of see what's going on and they make it very friendly i would i've seen the way shield is using some of the technology that marvel's really honed doing the movies to kind of come up with these short you know 50 minute films every week i that i would be interested in yeah i mean the idea of doing sort of a i mean it is kind of a procedural in that world yeah and adapting it that way for television was was great. I, I I've I've only seen the pilot and I lo- I loved it. Like it's a show that a lot of times when I watch something, if it hits me in a certain way, like you know I watch a show like Breaking Bad, I'll go, oh my god, the show's amazing. But I'll watch a show like Shield and I and I think a show like Breaking Bad I would not have watched as like a, as a as a as a teenager, mm-hmm. a consumer of kind of you know, but. Uh, but Shield is one of those shows I go like at any age. That's a show that I would that I would want to watch. I, I have a twelve year old daughter, and uh, I love that she wants to watch it and that she's involved and finds it quite scary at times. And as a as a nerd myself, there's never been a moment when they were capable of what they're capable of right now. So to see some of the shots and some of the sequences coming up, some of the upcoming episodes, the visual effects aren't like anything I've seen on TV. As a fan, I'm excited yeah. to see that. And to be able to do it in eight days is crazy. Yeah. And it, it, it does – I mean I, I never complain about being busy with work. I really don't like to complain about being busy with work. But that is the one thing where it's like, ah, shit. You know, like I, I want to be watching that show every week. But my schedule is it just like all of a sudden – do you, oh no! Do you, I know. do you find that just all of a sudden you're like, I, I remember saying something like, "Oh, that's not. We don't have to worry about that thing until October." I'm like, "Oh fuck, it's October!" I, yeah. I just I lose months. Yeah, no, completely. Especially you know the schedule, like I said, of doing it. I've somehow reached my age and never worked this hard. It's really amazing. <laughs> you, you get to be, you know, hey, cool. Guess what? It's your show, and I go, yeah. Whoa, hey, what? What's that now? <laughs> and so I'm there all the time. And I turned around and I was only. Two-thirds of the way through Breaking Bad season one. Right. You know, because again, I have a daughter. I'm busy. And I was desperately trying to catch up and realizing it's futile. <laughs> I don't want to read I'm too much. I don't want it to get spoiled for me. I love the show. I think Cranston's God. And, um, and I'm just going to have to catch up on that maybe in the summer on vacation. Yeah, isn't that funny? It's like, oh, the, you, you really start scheduling things seasonally. Oh, yeah. you know, in the yeah, in that period, oh, I'll do that over the Christmas break. Oh, okay, a little, a little bit of a spring break. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to catch up. I'm watching bit. The Wire. I mean, you know what I mean. I'm still catching up on The Wire. Did you read um, the amazing fan letter? <laughs> the Anthony, from Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins. From Hopkins. Yeah. Oh my God. The thing that I loved about that letter is that it's it started to turn into like a rambly fan letter. It's long. Oh yeah. He wrote a long letter. Oh yeah. And it starts rambling and he starts repeating and then. If you didn't know that it was Anthony Hopkins, you'd be like, oh, that's cute. Who's this Who's this crackpot? Yeah. You're like, it's Anthony Hopkins. But I know how he feels. He binge-watched. He binge-watched. He and got the full, big syringe of Breaking Bad in his arm. And you, I just I just picture Anthony Hopkins watching in this, like, Wayne Manor-esque type of a, you know, like a, a, a mega castle in Malibu. And then in this large, you know, uh, Montgomery Burns-esque chair. By a giant fireplace, and then he was so moved that he immediately had to go over and just like spit all this emotion yeah. out. But it's so encapsulated, you know, like what that experience could be. If Sir Anthony is binge watching, <laughs> then we've really reached a new way of, of watching stuff together. I don't even have cable anymore. Yes. I'll just well, watch everything on Netflix. I've got Netflix. the internet. We have the Netflix. We have the Netflix. I don't need them. I've got the internet. The flicks of net. <laughs> but um, it's. Uh, uh, do, do you find that. Because um, you're married to Jennifer Grey. I am, fortunately for me. Who's awesome. And you guys have been together for, I think, about probably like 12 or 13 years, right? Yes. So I know some things about you, wow, man. Clark. 
Um, and you have no notes. It's very impressive. No, no. I should be more prepared. I really should. I feel like it would be better for the guests if I were more prepared. But I, I, I like. You just know how long I'm. I'm married, which puts you past me in that category. <laughs> so I think you're doing okay. So last week when you guys went to that Italian restaurant, <laughs> now scary. Well, okay, a little wait, scary. That's a little weird. <laughs> now she's coming from around the corner. Um, but uh, I, do, do you? Sometimes the match of two actors being together can be good, and sometimes it can be challenging because you both, on the one hand, you understand each other's career choice, you understand how odd it can be, you can you understand the schedule and how it kind of never leaves your head. Yeah. The downside can be you both are programmed to have the same kinds of insecurities or the same kinds of needs, and sometimes that can create, you know... Yeah. Actors can be psycho. Let's not <laughs> let's not let's not beat around the bush. And uh, and I can be one of them once in a while, not as often, certainly as when I was younger. And Jennifer is not. Um, but we're also both passionate, and we love the same kind of stuff. We love movies, and and uh, and we're also I don't know. We've been at it a while. We've both done it a lot, and we've got a family now, and it's just kind of more important. And I guess the, to sum it up, there was a really good but very intense role in Trust Me that I, that I wrote with her in mind and offered to her. And she pulled me aside and said, you know, I see what this schedule is like. It's 20 days. This is your first day of filming. And I just would rather stay married. I'd, you know what I mean? Wow. I'm passing on this role. And I was like, but I think it's a terrific role. And, and, uh, and I was really hurt. I was really hurt until about, you know, a week later when I was prepping and I went, oh my God, she's, she's right. It would have been too much. I would have had to direct her the first day I was directing other actors while acting with them. Right. Which is weird and really is a huge trust exercise all into itself. And I just don't think anyone who wasn't an actor would have kind of had that depth and wisdom. That's pretty amazing. I Because I, I feel like you could have had, uh, you could have been married to another actor who was like, why, why am I only in twenty? You know, like they can oh, still find yes. the, they can still find the problem. Yeah, no, she's 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 kind of keeps me together. She's really, and when we, as I said, when we met and had a baby, <laughs> I was really a screenwriter, you know. And she was like, "You did some acting too, right?" And I was like, "No, I, I still do. <laughs> Stop it. I wasn't I wasn't in Ferris Bueller. Shut up." And um, and so. It, you know, she definitely had a moment going, I thought I married a screenwriter who would kind of be here all the time. And and then on the other hand, she's kind of watched, you know, what I would tentatively call a little bit of the rise, the, the kind sure. of late career. I mean, it's a great thing. It doesn't happen to anybody kind of to have the best stuff come their way after struggling for so long. And she really enjoys it more than anybody and really, you know is able to help me navigate it and like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> no. You're online right now. And I think that there's you should not be online right now. You know what I mean? There's right. for every she knows that you can read hundred kind of loving tweets or reviews, and it, the only one that will stick in your head is the one who just eviscerates you. Yeah, yeah. And what what I've what I've learned is that um, to to do that is uh, well, it's very natural to what we do because we're sensitive performer types, and you know, like we, there is a if you're a performer. No matter who you are, there is definitely a piece of you that's like, please like me. Like, you can't help it. 
Because, or at least I, I feel. No, like. you can't. It's Be- absolutely true. If you're a performer, you are putting a performance out there, and you, and it is in your DNA for people to go, ah, brilliant. You like, you want that. And so when someone is like, you're a piece of shit, go fuck yourself, then you can't. You're like, why? Why? You know, yeah. you get all whiny and baby about it. Yeah, it's funny. You, you, I feel like you get to a point where you kind of go, well, this is. I'm going to do the best I can. It's going to be as good as it's going to be. It will never be perfect. And here's what I've got. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes years to get there. And this is the truth of this to me. And, you know, if you like it, great. And if you don't, that's also going to have to be what I live with. But you never learn to love it. You have to. It feels like it has that weird Zen paradox where you've got to care enough about sharing it with people that you want to connect. Yeah. And if it doesn't connect, it hurts. And I think if you stop caring about that, you, it's, you've stopped accessing a thing that you need to do it well. Yeah, and I also, I also think that a, a lot of the comfort level, a lot of it comes with getting a little bit older and kind of, you know, feeling like, you know, it's really not that important if some guy that I've never heard of tells me I'm a piece of shit. Like, I don't know anything about that guy. Why, why would I take his recommendations for anything I, else? That's funny. You know? Jennifer and I have this a lot. She's always asking the waiter, Do you know, is this is this dish good? And I'm like, this guy might eat Eggo waffles all day long. You don't know. You know what I mean? I know your very specific taste. You're not going to like that just because this guy said it. I know. That's what my girlfriend Consider does. Consider the source. My girlfriend does that. She'll always say, what's your favorite thing on the menu? She'll ask the person. And then, and then, but you know. It, yes. It, for, some, for some reason, I feel like if I asked that question, it wouldn't work, but it works for her. In yeah. some way. Yes. And I benefit from that information, but I, you have to consider the source. And in fact, it's, we were driving this very weekend, and I sometimes listen to Raw Dog. <laughs> the, com- the comedy, the comedy channel I like stand ups. Raw Dog. I like stand ups. And, um, and there you were. What? Doing a brilliant set. She was like, I love this guy. I was like, talking to him this week. Doing a podcast. Yes. That's fantastic. Yes, it was that, great. I love the idea of you and Jennifer Gray driving across the countryside. You were talking about Rado. Australia. I was talking and about Australia. It was Austra- funny. It was a great riff about Australia. Oh, my God. I didn't remember what that was. I didn't remember what that was. I didn't know you did stand-up. I've done the most terrifying things. I've gone on in the leading role in a Broadway play with about four rehearsals, not really knowing the lines, and survived it, oh. just barely. And I think think about doing stand-up and I wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. Like, that seems like the scariest thing in the world it's to me. Fu- well, it's, you know, the big challenge for me is that I, in my head, stand-up is the main thing that I do. When, I, when I'm not, when I'm not uh, my schedule's not crazy, I'm usually touring somewhere every weekend. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing it for like 15 years. And, um, but it's not, it's, you know, because some of the other stuff is more popular, like a lot of people are just starting to figure out now, like, oh yeah, you actually, you actually do stand-up. But it's not, it's not scary in that, I think it, you know, you're a guy who understands how to make shit work. If you practiced at it, you'd be you'd be fine. It's not that it's not at that scale. I see. I know. Well, everyone has their thing. Like you, you understand the mechanics of it. So to you, it's that way. Your play thing is way more. <laughs> I think it's way scarier. Okay, well, doing a play is really scary. To be stuck in a play because at least with stand up, you have full control of the situation if you know how to have that. And if something fucks up, you can take a hard right turn and still save it. If you're doing a play and you fuck up a line, you can't turn to the audience and go, why don't we take that again? Like you, you are stuck in that, you're stuck in that thing. You're stuck in it. You just saying that you had to go on without any rehearsal, that is, I'm like, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> what was that? What was that? That would have been the Broadway production of A Few Good Men. Oh shit. 
and we had just arrived. We'd worked it out out of town. It was one of my first really. It was that's the first time, you know, I, first time I made enough to eat. That's why you know Sorkin then. Yeah. Okay. I'd met him before. I ran a theater company in New York called the Atlantic Theater Company, still there. And we would brought him up because he'd written a really promising, amazing first play called Removing All Doubt. And I thought, this kid's amazingly talented. And I bring him up there like, we're going to discover this guy. And he's like, got the first draft of... Um, a few good men, but it's already been optioned to be produced on Broadway. And, and P.S. Uh, Rob Reiner is going to make a movie out of it, so I was w- way too late. <laughs> but he, but he ended up putting me in this production, and I was in it. And we came to town, and I was playing the now famous Kevin Bacon role, sure. Jack Ross, and uh, Tom Hulse was the lead. And we'd oh, we'd opened on Broadway, and we're doing okay. And they called and said, uh, "Listen, I know you've only had a couple rehearsals. We've been meaning to get to those understudy rehearsals because I was also understudying the lead." Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I thought it would be a growth experience, and boy was it! And they called and said Tom's dog was was bitten, and he's at the you know emer- vet emergency room. We're gonna have you're gonna have to go on. This is when I arrived at the theater <gasps> actually, oh. and they're, so they're putting on the costume. Doesn't fit me. <laughs> he's a navy officer. I'm a marine, and uh, and they're kind of running the lines with me. I'm realizing I just don't know them. <gasps> I just don't know them. And I said we gotta cancel. And they're like there's 1,800 people out there. <gasps> and I'm st- <laughs> I'm standing backstage and they go, and we're about to go on. And I think I kind of know the first act because I'm in a bunch of it and I've heard it a bunch. And, uh, and the second act's all in the courtroom. If I can just get through the first act, I'm standing backstage and they say, today, the, of the speaker, the role normally played by Academy Award winner or nominee <laughs> Tom Hulse yeah. will be played by someone you've never heard of, Clark Gregg. and I just shriveled like a raisin and they literally it was like you know they have to shove me out on stage and the other actors and it was one of these things where you're on stage the whole three hours three hours of not knowing the lines and I kept trying to say my lines when the scenes with my character were in I kept and uh, mouthing your own and the people are there's a blackout and you go to another area of the stage and, and another scene happens it's basically like the movie script and the actors are kind of in the dark going, you're okay, you're okay. You basically got the gist of that scene. Walk that way. And they shove me into another pool of light and someone else would appear. Are you improvising at that point? I'm doing the gist. I right. kind of know the lines. We're cutting chunks. Sure. But the story's still working. And you can feel the audience go from just tremendous abject disappointment to, oh my God, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's doing. <laughs> and that kind of works for that character. He's in over his head. He's yes. in Cuba. Stephen Lang from Avatar is screaming at me and just exploiting the fact that I'm so frightened. He's really got the power balance that day. And I get to intermission and they're like fanning me like a character in a Tennessee Williams. Like, now you're in the courtroom, bro. Now you're in the courtroom. And I'm in the middle of... And I'm in the middle of... Um, interrogating Stephen Lang in the courtroom and I'm I got one more question for you sir and you're like yeah what is it and I'm like no idea hold on one sec and I'm going back to the table and they're handing me the pages from the script oh my god that's genius that works so well here's what it is it all works right it all works and I by the end the audience is like oh my god he got out of it oh my god he used the pages from the script I bet that's what it is I get to the end huge standing ovation which is all about like he survived he didn't die (laughs) but see that is that is that using your and I think that right there is the core of being a performer is not just about the lines and getting it the way that but to use the situation and create this organic experience that's that's such a fantastic story it was one of the most it's, it's every actor's nightmare right you know what I mean to be on stage not knowing the lines they take me out between shows to the restaurant next door and everyone's like you did it kid you did it you didn't even know the lines I'll never forget this day and they buy me a huge piece of this thing called mud pie 
huge chocolate. Oh, did you order the code red? I'm sorry. I had to say that. That's exactly right. It was the code red mud pie. Yeah. Had a big piece. Went back to my dressing room. Tom's back. The dog's okay. I'm going to lie down for a minute in my dressing room because back as Kevin Bacon, I don't come in for 25 minutes. Sure. The next thing I know, this story has a, a less glorious ending. The door swings open in my dressing room and there's a guy with headphones, a stage manager, going, Tom's on stage waiting for you. You passed out from adrenaline and mud cake. And I'm just like, I stumble out on stage like 30 seconds later in a T-shirt with my jeans, not in a Marine dress uniform, from the other side of the stage and two chairs, just a guy who's asleep, not sure where he is, 1,800 more people in the audience. Oh, Jesus. And a very confused and a little bit upset Tom Hulse on the other side going, oh, God. And I'm walking on stage and I'm having the thing from the nightmare. Oh, God, I hope this isn't a musical because I don't sing. Yeah. And I go out and it's, in a, it's a plea bargain, the first scene. And he's like, I'm going, three, give you five? And he's like, no, that's not the numbers of this. And I finally kind of sort it out. And instead of, since there's no chairs, we sit down on the steps. And I look down and my zipper's completely down. <laughs> and I have made my pubic hair a supporting character in, in A Few Good Men. Were you going, were you going um, commando? I was, well, I was asleep. Okay, <laughs> sure, sure. I, you know, I think I... it was an unfortunate kind of boxer fold moment. But... <laughs> I get through the scene. I stumble back. I have to. I wait till he comes off. I look backstage, and there's when I go off stage, everyone, all the all the um, supporting characters are in dress. They're all collapsed on the floor, writhing, laughing so hard, silently at what I've just done to Tom. And I go, I go back, and I have to prostrate myself at his feet. Just, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He's like, did you pass out from the adrenaline? Yeah. Don't do that again. <laughs> he knew it was a thing, no, but he still didn't want you to I do it again. Be, I went. So I was literally. Charlie Brown, hero to goat in it, about 55 minutes. But you know what, though? A nice, a nice metaphor for the entertainment business, you know? A nice metaphor, a good lesson it's, learned. It's a, good le- it's a famous story amongst a certain age of Broadway actor. I went to Broadway bowling, which was a thing we did, and literally walked in and everyone stopped bowling and we're like, there he is, <laughs> there he is. Thanks for the story. <laughs> See, that's why... You know, when, when S.H.I.E.L.D. and all the Marvel stuff took off, when you go home at night, uh, you have to start addressing Jennifer with lines like, well, as an actor, like, you have to start off yeah, with absolutely. that, just to, just to let her know. I have, I have flop sweat right now just from telling, <laughs> telling that story. story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you got through it. You got through it. And, and, let's, and Tom Hulse. Um, Amazing. Like, Amadeus holds up as as well as it did when that movie came out and i loved him in parenthood i think i think he was one of the best things in the movie parenthood a brilliant actor dominic and eugene dominic and eugene He's brilliant i learned so much from him he was so indulgent with me i was so trying to find out what good acting was and there was a you know i couldn't make some scenes work i'd come out like tossing jelly beans in the air to catch him in my mouth just and he was like never said stop it you're, I know you're searching, but search, search downtown at your other theater. <laughs> he was, couldn't have been more generous. And, you know, he, he, I think he stopped loving it as much. Yeah. You know, he was only willing to do it when it really had the joy to it. And now he's one of the most amazing off-Broadway producers and directors and develops amazing stuff. Yeah. Have, do, you, do, you, have you, do you talk to him every once in a while? I haven't in a couple of years, but, you know, uh, my theater, The Atlantic in New York, it's, it's an off-Broadway theater in Chelsea, and it's, so it's a great... They bring plays. You can try them out in, in the city. Musicals, things that are hard to produce except where you have a cheap contract where the actors don't get paid too much. So he was one of the main forces behind Spring Awakening. Oh, amazing right. amazing music that yeah. Duncan, Sh- I saw that Duncan Sheik did. And yeah. he was one of the people behind that. And 
he he still does a lot of stuff. So I saw him then. It always. I'll always have a soft spot. Well, maybe then maybe the next time you write a movie, you could you could throw a little you could throw a little Hulse in oh, there. Oh man, I would love to get him out of retirement. Yes, he so he is just flatly retired. I don't think he acts much anymore. It's a sad thing. I he mean, popped up on something in the last handful of years, and I can't remember what it was. But I I didn't recognize him because I had I was still I still had in my head Tom Hulse from Animal Hulse. House. Okay, Animal maybe House. The Animal House. Yes. Yeah. He just popped up in the last 35 years in Animal House. <laughs> no, I can't remember what it was. Katie, can you just see what Tom, Tom's done in the last couple of years? Um, so what – are you done shooting at the moment? Or no. are you, you're just – you're still in it? No, I'm off today because of the great respect that Marvel has for Chris Hardwick. That's, and that's not true. Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to be fighting such hairy aliens right now. <laughs> and I'm dodging – and I dodged those bullets because they found out who I was going to talk uh, oh, to. Of course, of course. They love you over at Marvel. I love them too. It's been – I mean the, the panels. We've done a couple – Oh, the done, one you guys did this year. I watched some of it. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was uh, – The we, Guardians of the Galaxy and the – Oh, Guardians. The uh, Like – and that's what's so great about Comic-Con is not – is people – being surprised by things and obviously you know I know people were expecting the big what was it Jumper he was in Jumper that's right he was in Jumper and Stranger Than Fiction and Stranger Than Fiction that's, no I'm sorry I did see Jumper alright I saw Jumper guys let's just get over it <laughs> um, um, was Jumper good in I, that way yeah, yeah, okay. I mean it yeah. was a it, it looked it looked no <laughs> Jumper was sort of like um, an Axe body spray commercial <laughs> with with jump with uh, teleportation, jumping through time into little wormholes, basically. It was yeah, just basically. It was it was a it was a, I have the power of teleportation, and you could you know oh you could jump into a bank vault and then take all that money. You know it was like one of those, but then there were evil people and the right. you know for that kind of movie it was fine. I don't want to shit on it. Some people probably loved it. I thought it was okay. It just went up in my brain because of Hulse. Yeah. But yeah, he was in Stranger Than Fiction too. But. But when you but when people go and they expect to see like big tentpole announcements and stuff, and then they are so pleasantly surprised by something like Guardians and the footage that James put together, yeah, it was uh, that movie looks fucking awesome, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. How is it for you? Um, that part that part must be kind of weird too. Is you know your your screenwriter you sort of had put to bed like okay you know I don't guess I don't need to be an actor but I'll do it here and there and then you start working more and then and then you're at Comic Con with seven thousand people. And they love the shit out of you, and they, I mean, like, what is, how does that feel? I mean, that's probably a hard thing to it's, put into words. No, it's surreal. It's, uh, it was, I would, can't, I've always felt like it's what I started out doing in my 20s and worked so hard at for years and loved. I just, I've always felt like an actor. But if I, I never felt like just an actor, I guess, because we, Right out, I got into this amazing class at NYU, just so damn lucky, with Bill Macy and David Mamet. We're teaching the class, and no one knew who Bill Macy was except everyone who saw great theater in Chicago. And uh, out of that class, we formed a company, Felicity Huffman, and Macy became part of it and really one of the main directors and uh, actors in it. And for 10 years, we did theater, and we all did everything. You know, you built the set, and then you acted on it at night, and you just act better on a set you built. Yeah, and you, you know, sometimes we'd bring in outside directors and go, "We should have directed this ourselves. We get what we do better." And and we'd, we'd all do a little bit of everything. And I ran it, and I worked with the playwrights, and I learned a lot about writing, and was really had so much respect for it, having studied with someone like Mammoth, that I was scared to do it. And when I started doing that, uh, I really loved it. But I found sitting alone 
all the time kind of hard. I, I'm a social person. I like to be around the other actors. And so I, for a while, I had a really cool thing where I'd be writing in my trailer. I would write writing choke while I was in my trailer for Iron Man. And then I'd go make choke. And I thought, this is a fantastic blend. And I thought, you know, it's nice. I get to come in. I get to be in some cool projects. I come in and do a scene or two, and I go home. And to kind of the way Phil Coulson took off for people really blew me away. I, you know, they said, you know, we're going to... I got this hilarious call from Feige going, first of all, Joss popped up next to me at the, before the panel of Thor in the green room at Comic-Con and said, hi, Joss Whedon. I was like, I know. <laughs> I've been meaning to call you. I've, I've written you a really great part in The Avengers. Can I introduce you with the cast? And I turn, and the big surprise that year was, here comes the cast of The Avengers. Right. All my favorite actors. And I was like, this is the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and I have about a week to live, and no one's told me. <laughs> That's going to be the big announcement. And two minutes later, there I am on stage with them, you know? And I, and I just was like, this is... This, I, I, I almost was a jumper myself there. I almost <laughs> just teleported. I thought I'm going to wake up in my den just oh, delusional. I wish you had been in that movie. <laughs> then I would I know, right? And then, uh, and to, you know, and then I got this call... And I got to, and I thought, well, he's going to come in. He's going to die really early, and and I will have had a great run. And instead, I get this thing where he's really kind of the one who kind of in, he knows them all, and he brings them all together. And Joss has written him one of the great death scenes of all time. Yes. And uh, you know, still, when it came time to shoot that episode, I was a little bit of a mess. I realized how much I loved playing this guy, and and I kept kind of going, you know, there's a lot of good outtakes of me going, I'm the, I'm the glue, <laughs> but, but I'm the glue. Who's going to be the glue? And they were like. You know, feel grateful. You've had a hell of a run. And I was like, you're right. You're right. I should. And I do. And because um, I'd gotten this call from Kevin going, listen, you do have a big part. And what, what, what happens to you is what brings the Avengers together. And I thought, oh, oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so could they just come together because I know they what like... if they just all like the same show? Yeah. What if they like the same show or this one song comes on like the Pina Colada song? Everyone loves that. It comes yes. on. It brings them together. Maybe they went to college together. And um, <laughs> does it really have to die? And uh, and, and uh, but they, I said they said, no, it's really great. You know, when you go down, there's not going to be a dry eye in the house. And I was like, well, I mean, hey, I love Coulson more than anybody, but it can be a little annoying. You know what I mean? He's a little <laughs> nasty with Natalie Portman and Thor. They might not be that bummed. And so when there was this Coulson Lives movement, you know, people started saying, you should really check out the Twitter, Grandpa, because there's some cool stuff going on there with you. And and, I, and I'd see these pictures of people who had, like, you know, painted it on, on a bridge in, in Czechoslovakia and, to have that be the reason they brought me back, you know, Marvel listens to that stuff, which is one of the reasons I love them, and well, one of the main reasons I love them. Sure. And uh, just you do stuff. I did theater for years, and I, I came to L.A. because, you know, I do a play that ran for four months, and like a total of five thousand people would have seen it. And you you kind of make a little film that goes to Sundance, and several million people get to see it, and kind of you get to communicate with them and connect with them in that way. And, if you don't want some kind of connection, I don't know why you do it. And to have, to connect with people and to have them kind of – some of the letters I got, people who just got what was cool about Phil Coulson to me, you know, the fact that he's willing to kind of go front off with Loki 
and do his job and not, you know, be a, such a fan and so buy the whole heroism thing. And to be a fanboy, you know Phil Coulson's been to some cons. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's been really moving. I can't get too glib about it. It's really moving to me to have this character. I, when I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, people would kind of look up and see me standing there crossing the street and they would just put an arm around me like, hey, Agent Phil Coulson. Yeah. Like, I'm a, just a, he's a real guy to them, you know, who does a job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how it happened, but I feel really, really grateful about well, it. Well, I think a lot, a lot of it was, you know, just you as a performer. You didn't need it. And so there's that. Like, there's no... You're not wrong. Phil, Phil, Phil's just a guy that... He's, he's relatable. You like him. You, cut, you root for him. Because, you, like you said, he just has a little extra something. But he's, he's also not trying to chew up the scenery. He's just there, and you like him. And... He's this. He's the one. He's really the one relatable guy out of the entire. I mean, all the other ones are sort of like, oh, it'd really be great to, you know, it'd be great to be Thor. It'd be great to be, you know. But Phil's like, oh fuck, Phil's us. Phil's us. He's humanity. Like Phil's Phil's humanity. Like he's he's the he's our avatar in that world. You know what I mean? We. I don't think anyone knew, including myself, probably not even Kevin or Jeremy at Marvel, how much there was a need for somebody like that. That the audience wanted, it was a great in yeah. to that world. It was you know they would be discovering Thor or Loki through the eyes of this person, you know. And I think it really, different writers would come along and you, you could tell they got something about him different. The guys at Thor had this great moment where, you know, he's out in the desert with five or six shield vehicles and all these shield agents, and he's got his bullhorn, and there's the fifteen foot tall faceless destroyer creature from Asgard. He's like, oh, my God, what do we got now? <laughs> this is probably Stark. The guy doesn't tell me anything. And yeah. you just go, what has this guy seen this week that <laughs> he's, he's still, this blasé? Still in the face of that, he still has to do a version of, you have the right to remain silent. Like, yeah. He still yeah. has to do his job. I think you're using some unlicensed weapons technology <laughs> that I, I'm afraid that's not cool. Sorry and, uh, to be that guy. That, that duality to him. And also that he's kind of psyched to yeah. be the one there dealing with it. Um, I think, in a way, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. really comes from that moment. Yeah. Do you, uh, uh, do you appreciate, when you're on stage with all the Avengers and then you're just thrust into that moment, are you able to appreciate that moment as it's happening? Or do you have to sort of process it later? Or, and I guess what I'm getting at is, how much pressure do you put on yourself to appreciate everything that's happening or do you just sort of let it happen? I don't have to I don't I feel lucky even that I have this feeling because I guess you can get more jaded than I somehow have gotten I think it's because I I kind of got kicked around for years I just <laughs> I kind of can't believe that I'm at the party yeah and I walk onto the helicarrier to do the first scene and I'm like I can't tell what I'm going to explode from more the fact that I'm walking on to do a scene with Scarlett and Ruffalo and who who I know from New York and Robert who I just I can't believe I get to act with and all these people or that I that I the 15 year old me is going oh my god I'm about to do a scene with Steve Rogers Tony Stark <laughs> Natasha Romanoff and Bruce Banner like either one of those could kill me on the spot and uh, I think that's what people are reading in, in Coulson though <laughs> that he is that you know he is the sort of he is the elevated fanboy that got to, but that has a little bit of power, you know. He totally is. Yes, <laughs> I mean he's the one that you identify with. <laughs> As you, um, uh, you, 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 you made jokes about yourself, like, "Oh, I'm an old guy," but you're not an old guy. 
but you are, you know, like you, you, you do, do you see yourself that way, or do you, do you, how do you? No, I, you know, I always feel like I'm 24. You know, inside my head, I'm sure I'll be sitting there, kind of barely able to get down the street, still feeling like where's, <laughs> where's a good game of basketball for me to play in. I, I guess I feel like, in a way that I'm really happy and comfortable with, I had a really wild, turbulent, difficult youth that went on about 40 years. Yeah, and uh, and I'm really happy to kind of turn around and be a veteran. I was was weird to me to start Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and to find that I kept turning around for Robert or somebody to kind of lead the ship. And I realized, oh, I gotta, I'm kind of the one who has to do this. I, this is kind of my, my crew, and i got to make it clear how we're going to do this and help these, you know, really talented young performers, you know, who they're very much Phil Coulson. They're feeling so lucky to be part of the stories we've already told, and they want to put their own stamp on it and just to kind of make them feel welcome in the same ways that I was made to feel welcome. Yeah. What do you feel like, you, you know, in that sort of turbulent time and you came out, you came out great. Um, what is it, uh, this might be kind of a weird lame question, but what do you think it means to sort of be a man as you kind of get older and you, you know, again, not being an old man, but just as you get no, age No, no, I'm wisdom. 51. I, yeah. I think it's, I, hope I guess I, what I'm asking, do I have to be afraid of it? Um, do I have to be afraid of Do I have to be afraid of fifty fifty one? I don't know. I don't know because I don't. It's so it so changes. It seems like it changes every five minutes. I can't believe that the fifty one I'm dealing with is anything like what it was like for my dad. It feels so different. They felt ancient when when we were young, yeah, right? Yeah, my daughter's twelve. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm and it's not like we're the only parents who had kids when we were in our late thirties at the school. A lot of people are doing it different. We're just in a different experience now. I think that the you know the way to maybe it's Los Angeles, but I've never been in better shape. You know what I mean? <laughs> I work out like crazy. Uh, work's never been more fun. I, I don't think so. I'm have, I've never had more fun. That's than good. Now. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that because you know when you're young and you go. Uh you kind of have these benchmarks and you go, well, when I'm 25, I'm fucking ancient. And then you get to 25 and you're like, what was I talking about? And then you, and then it's like, 30 is going to be the one. You get to 30 and you're like, it's fine. You know, like every time you think 10 years ahead is going to be this daunting and then you get there and you're like, it's, not, it's fine. It's not bad at all. It's great. Yeah, everybody, everybody kind of has different moments, you know, different, different times when things come together for them. I feel like however it happened – a lot of things really started to click for me, you know, after I was 40. And this has been the most fun I've had. Maybe you're lucky that it didn't happen in your 20s. Oh, I'm so lucky. <laughs> I'm so lucky. <laughs> there was a movie, I, one of the first auditions I ever went on in New York became this, I'm not going to say what it was, but it became a huge independent film success, a very early one. And, I, and they had called and said, it's between you and one other guy. You almost got this. And it, they, they want to put you on hold. And I was like, What? Really? What? And and uh, and I didn't get it. And year in this, I was watching this movie with someone years later. And I said, I almost got that part. And uh, and the the girl was like, Oh, that's sad that you think that. And <laughs> no, no, really. And then I was at a premiere of a friend's movie, and I saw this famous director. And he comes over to me, and goes, Do you remember me? Because I had actually. He was so young at the time he made this movie that I thought he was the guy running the video camera in the audition. Oh, wow. And I was like, this is a cool gig. How'd you get this gig? Do, you, do they need any more video camera guys? <laughs> and he was like, no, I'm the director. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, I do remember you. He was I wanted to give you that part. 
but uh, you know, we went with somebody else. But I, and I thought, wow, I wasn't delusional. He really, it was really close. And I, then I tried to picture what my life would have been like at Cannes at 24, the mess I was, and I doubt I would have survived. Now, you didn't say anything negative, so you really can't say what it was because now I'm really curious to know what it was. Um, I can't say what it was. Um, because there's not that many roles in it, and it would be like, you know. Oh, I got you. I don't want to disparage the other guy sure, who sure, got sure, that role. Sure, 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 um, Well, we're almost at about an hour. Can okay. I can't believe it. It usually goes about an hour. But I don't want to keep, I don't want to keep you too long. What do you, what do you have to do the rest of the day? Do you have the day off? Um, yes, I don't have to go back to, I don't have to go back to set till tomorrow. So what do you do with free time? Well, you have a, you have a, you have a 12 year old, so you probably, that probably gets a lot of your free time. Um, it's, it does. It's my, that's my fun time and stuff with her. Although she just wants to go to set and hang out with Chloe Bennett and <laughs> Elizabeth Henstridge. Um, I'm going to try to learn my lines for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Probably try to get a workout in and, uh, maybe, you know, you inspired me. I'll try to do some writing, see if I can't write another little what? indie. Do you, make. are there, are there, are there things, are there like sort of swirling eddies of ideas in the back of your head? Oh, like, it's oh, worse than that. I know. I have a writing job with the studio that I was supposed to do and, and they're really kind, this particular producer. And I said, look, you know, first I said, I can't really do this right now because I got a chance to make this film, Trust Me. And then they said, okay, Trust Me's finished now. It took you six months. And I said, okay, I'm making a pilot of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> and I think it's – I got a message from them yesterday. I haven't even been able to listen to it yet because I think they're going to say, look, you've got to write this now or we have to move on. <laughs> and then, well, that's when you answer the phone. You go – did you see the numbers on Shield? And yeah. then you throw the phone down. Yes. And then just see how that see how that goes over. I'll try that. Yeah, try that approach. You can never. I could never picture you. I could never picture that. This, oh, someone, I could do it. I could do it. But could I'm you not really? Gonna, no, I'm not gonna. Someone told me uh, I would do it, and then I would call him back and apologize immediately. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't know. I was, <laughs> I'd apologize to the phone. This is backtrack. I'm Captain Backtrack too. <laughs> but uh, I also uh, um, I was talking to someone about. I can't remember who it was. I can't remember. I cannot remember who it was, but it was the idea that. Oh, that's. You wanted to know what it's going to be like when you get a little God louder. God damn it! That's what it's going to happen. And by the way, I think this is a conversation from like three hours ago. Yeah. And that's like my dad. My dad will. My dad can tell you things in detail from you know the '70s or the '80s, but then he can't tell you what he had for breakfast. My dad's 72. Oh. Um, well, don't do a TV show because. Everyone who walks up to you looks a little familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you had a big 80s nice like I did. You. What do you mean? And we used to work together. Oh, my God. I'm oh, sorry. if I think they're a fan, then they're my neighbor. Yeah. And if I think they're my neighbor, they don't know me at all. <laughs> well, this idea was that um, any set is uh, the tone of the set all hinges on who the number one name on the call sheet is. And if that number one name is super cool, then the set in general is like a really pleasant, really great place to be. That's some of the pressure I was talking about. <laughs> you can't really have a moody, bitchy day. No, because you're not just you're not just the leader um, in the story. You're the leader, and as in as, of the actors, like you have to steer the emotional. You have more responsibility than just you know. If you're cranky someday. You really, you really have to kind of still manage. Yeah, that. you can't, you can't, you don't really have license for that. And on the other hand, I got a really terrific. There's not a lot of attitude. We got great people there because yeah. it can be bad. Literally, when you start a job, you look around and go, "Okay, who's psycho? Is anybody psycho? Is this going to be a nightmare?" And you know, luckily, I think Joss and everyone involved—they just picked people on the crew and on the cast that that aren't like that. And um, it, the funny thing is, it's a mirror of the show. You know, I kind of, I'm basically going, okay, let's try it this way. What do you think about this? Is everyone good with this? And I'm going, yes, Colson. 
<laughs> well, I really, I really enjoyed the show, and I loved having you on. And it was always, you know, whenever I would kind of see, you know, you were always so nice to me because even if I wasn't, we would sort of pass at a comic con, and you would stop and always come over and say hi. And I'm like, wow, Clark's I'm so nice fan. to me. I'm a fan, even though you you nearly ended it all for me. <laughs> what did I do in New York? What did I do? I was sitting backstage before the first of post of first Avengers panel at New York Comic Con. Right, we we're about to go out. No, no were, one had seen anything yet. By the way, we were showing footage. No one had seen anything. That's right. I was. I didn't even know why I was invited. I mean, like you know, all this, the Kobe was there and Chris Evans and Mark Ruffalo and. You're about to. We were about to do a panel at New York Comic Con, and they were playing some really like crank and thrashy like dum 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 ba dum ba dum. And I'm just start. I'm back there, just kind of happy, and I start singing a, a made up theme song to the Avengers that I'm making up on the spot. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, I remember this. Now. I get out on stage, <laughs> and you go, "What was that song you were singing? You were singing an Avengers theme song." And I looked at you, just my all the color went out of my face. I was like, God damn it. But it was so great. It dude, was, it wasn't dude so- what are you doing? And I was like, I'm not going to sing that. And literally there's 5,000 people going, <laughs> yes, you must sing it. And it I hadn't really awesome. thought it through and it didn't rhyme. No, it was great. But it was perfect. It was one of those we like. muscles so bulky and we have a hulky. Okay, that's the kind of thing <laughs> you sing backstage so to yourself. But it was, it was yes, that's right. Because oh. then you indicated. It's on YouTube. It is on oh, YouTube. God, that yes. is a I'll beautiful. Never live it down. I am so not sorry. <laughs> it's backstage when you're pointing at Ruffalo. You got muscles so bulky, and you point at Ruffalo, go, and we got a hulky. I was like, you have to say that on stage. That is such a great moment. That makes me so happy. Damn, I've never been punished more for my impulse control. This backstage. is the one time I'm not backtracking. <laughs> I am so glad that exists in the world uh-huh. outside of my head. Uh, you're not letting me go. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm not sorry. Uh, it was good to see you, man. Likewise, it was really, really good to see I'm you. Looking forward to this. Absolutely. Uh, Age, Agents of Shield is on. Clark, come, on. Come, check come, it out. Come back anytime you want. Oh, come back. You know when you start tooling around with the new whatever the next thing you're going to write. Let us let us know. I'll come back with trust me. Please come back with trust me. Please do. Would love to. All right. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy your burrito. Uh, Mr. Hager. Yes, it's Joe Hager. Uh, Joe, uh, uh, is your father the one that uh, makes uh, clothes? Yes, sir. We're all together. Uh, you all made me some real lightweight slacks uh, uh, that he just made up on his own, sent to me three or four months ago. It's a kind of a light brown and a light green, rather soft green and soft brown. And they're real lightweight. Now, I need about six pairs for summer wear. I want a couple, maybe three of the light brown, uh, kind of a almost powder color, like powder on a lady's face. Then there were some green, and then maybe some other light pair. If you had a blue in that or or black, I'd have one blue and one black. I need about six pairs uh, for around in the evening when I come in from work. And I need uh, about a half an inch too tight in the waist. Do you recall the exact size? I just wanted to be sure we get them right for you. No, I don't know. You, you all just guessed at them, I think, son, but wouldn't you have the measurements there? We'll find them for you. I can send you a pair. I want them a half an inch larger in the waist than they were before, except I want two or three inches of stuff left back in there so I can take them up. I vary 10 or 15 pounds a month. So uh, leave me at least two and a half, three inches in the back where I can let them out or take them up. And put, make these a half inch bigger in the waist. Make the pockets at least an inch longer. Money, my money and my knife and everything fall out. Wait just a minute. 
it's when you sit down in a chair, the knife and your money comes out. So I needed at least another inch in the pockets. Yeah. Now, another thing with crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a, a wire fence. These are almost these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So leave me. Uh, you never do have much margin there. But see if you can't leave me about an inch from the, where the zipper ends uh, around uh, under my back to my bunghole. So I can let it out there if I need to. Now, be sure you got the best zippers in them. These are good that I have. And uh, if you get those to me, I would sure be grateful. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST.